Welcome to Clear Bible, ministry of New Joy Fellowship, Life Together Churches, and me, Tom Hilpert. I'm really glad you're listening. We're in the book of 1 Samuel, and this is part 12, 1 Samuel part 12, and we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 24 through 52. Again, if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 24, or sorry, 1 Samuel 14, 24 through 52, and again, this is 1 Samuel part 12. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. And in fact, I'm, I'm not going to read any of it until we get into this a little bit, just because there's so much of it. And I want to set the scene and sort of explain what's happening. I do really strongly encourage you to read it. So take a moment now to, to read it, you know, pause this and then, then come back. Where Again, we're reading verses 24 through 52. And let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak to us through your word right now. Let us hear what you have to say to each one of us as we listen to what you have to say. Help us to respond in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last time we learned how Jonathan, more or less single-handedly, he had his armor bearer with him. The two of them attacked the Philistines. And Jonathan acted out of faith, not fear. And God used that faith and he used Jonathan's actions of space to create a major, major victory for the people of Israel. And the battle went on and the Israelites pushed the Philistines basically back to the lines, the enemy lines, as they were before the beginning of it. They pushed the Philistines back to the edge of the hill country, which is where the Philistine sort of border normally was. But Saul, once again, showed his lack of a real relationship with God. Because of his legalism, because of his false religion, the victory was not as good as it should have been. It wasn't as great as it should have been. And nothing spoils good works like false religion and religious pretenses. So the situation was like this. I'll, I'll describe it. And again, I'll, I'll read you from the scripture in, in a little bit here. The Israelites had, had routed the Philistines. They were running. They were fighting amongst themselves. They were filled with terror. And this was in spite of the fact that it was only two people who had attacked them initially. Uh, and there were only two people with iron weapons in the whole army. And that was Saul and Jonathan. But in spite of this fact, the, the Philistines were running away. And this was going on. And maybe, I don't know what was going on in Saul's mind here. Maybe he remembered, oh, wow, I'm the only one. Me and Jonathan are the only ones with iron weapons. So even though the battle was going well, miraculously well, in fact, Saul, for whatever reason, became worried about the outcome. And so he made an oath and imposed it on all of the army. And the oath was that no one should eat until the sun went down. Now, that sounds very religious. It sounds very impressive. It was supposed to show the soldiers that their mission was serious. It was supposed to motivate them. And, and I think it probably was supposed to impress God so that God would help them even more. And it backfired because it was a stupid idea that came not from faith, but from fear and from selfishness and from pride. And I want to point out, Saul was not content to make this oath for himself alone, right? He... He had to impose it on everybody else. It sounds holy, right? 
But this is typical of people who do not live by relationship with God precisely because they don't have their own relationship with God. They feel that everything they experience must be a rule that everyone else should follow as well. They don't recognize the give and take of unique life walking by faith, life experiences that go along with walking with God by faith. They live only by rules, and so they impose those rules on others in order to feel secure. And Saul's oath, actually, you can see it wasn't motivated by the one true God because it really is more of a curse than an oath. He said, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. And if you just listen to that, you say, that that doesn't sound like the voice of the Lord. It sounds a whole lot more like the voice of the devil. There is an Old Testament tradition of making vows and having blessings and curses associated with those vows. But again, those are associated not just with curses, but also with blessings. But Saul did not include any blessing in his vow. It's not associated with any promises from the Lord. There's nothing positive about it. And I want you to notice too, Paul, Saul says, you know, cursed be anyone who eats food until I am avenged on my enemies. He sees the battle with the Philistines as his own personal quest, right? It's his own battle. The Philistines are his own personal enemies. Now contrast that with Jonathan, who clearly saw the battle as the Lord's fight. The Lord can deliver, whether by many or few. That's what Jonathan said last time. He saw himself simply as a tool in God's hands, whereas Saul sees it, oh, this is all about him. It's all about himself. And three negative things came out of this, out of Saul's vow, his his oath, basically. First, the victory was not as great as it could have been. In other words, the vow had the opposite effect to the one Saul wanted, right? He wanted it to motivate the soldiers. He wanted to make it impressive. He wanted them to, you know, fight harder. But actually, they were weakened. They were physically weakened by hunger. So they couldn't sustain their offensive against the Philistines. And so they pushed them back to where the whole thing had started, but they didn't gain any ground. And that's Saul's fault, because Saul's vow did not proceed from faith, but from his own flesh. It was all about self-effort. Because the vow was all about the flesh and self-effort, it was as weak as the flesh. And flesh without food is weak. So the vow flopped. Jonathan's act of faith had energized and and you know, motivated the soldiers, but rash, Saul's rash vow, based on self-effort, based on the flesh, drained them and robbed them of strength. And Jonathan himself realized this after he'd eaten in ignorance of the vow. He didn't know about the vow, and he ate a little bit of honey. He dipped his staff in, in some honey and ate it, and one of the soldiers told him about Saul's vow, and Jonathan said, this is 1 Samuel 14, 29 and 30. My father has brought trouble to the land. Just look at how I have renewed energy because I tasted a little honey. How much better if the troops had eaten freely today from the plunder they took from their enemies. Then the slaughter of the Philistines would have been much greater. They might have even gained some territory in this war. So Saul's vow had the opposite effect. It, it demotivated the troops. It drained them of energy. It weakened them by the flesh. Second, because they were so hungry, 
When sundown arrived and the vow sort of expired, the troops began to slaughter the captured livestock of the Philistines, and they began to do this and to eat without regard to the laws of Moses. And remember, this is Old Testament times here. This is before Jesus. They were supposed to obey the dietary laws of Moses. Specifically, what was going on is they were eating meat that had not been properly drained of blood. Moses had commanded the people of Israel to drain the blood from any animal that was butchered. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Leviticus 17, 11 and 12 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. So the idea is this, the life of an animal or the life of a person is carried in the blood. But the life of an animal or a person belongs to God. God says, look, I'll give you the meat to eat. I own everything. I own the world. You can have meat to eat, but you can't have the life. You can't own the animal the way I do. So let the life, the blood, drain out on the ground. Offer that back to me. You can have the flesh for food, but the life belongs to God. <clears throat> must be cons must be given to him, not consumed by the people. It's it's a way of saying, as they butcher the animal, even as I take this food, I recognize that the life of this animal belongs to God, not me. I receive the food as a gift, and I give its life back into God's hands. And that also was setting up the idea of life in the blood. Our lives are in the blood, and we need to be redeemed by blood, and it set up the picture of what Jesus did for us. So this was something that God still wanted his people to practice at this point in history, but now Saul's rash vow weakened their resolve. They couldn't wait to eat. They were starving to death. They'd been working hard and running and fighting all day long, and now they're just hungry. They just kill this thing and let me start cooking it. And so they weren't properly bleeding out the animals. They weren't honoring the law of Moses. So if you want to look at it this way, say this, Saul's vow did not protect people from sinning. It made them more vulnerable to sinning. And as a result, Saul had to waste valuable time and energy getting the people to butcher their meat properly. And you see that in the text as you read it, right? I'm sure you read it. It's, it shows you there in the text. He had to stop the people from doing this and say, wait a minute, stop, stop. You got you to gotta do this right. Excuse me one second. <coughs> So it, it weakened the people, it made them more vulnerable to sin, and then third, Saul's foolish vow led to strife when it came to his own son, Jonathan. Saul had bound everyone to his vow, even those who didn't know about it, and Jonathan didn't know about it. He was unaware of what Saul had said, and so when he was passing by this wild honey, he grabbed some on his staff and ate it, and then continued to pursue the Philistines. The Hebrew says that as a result of eating, his eyes became bright. And it's a Hebrew expression that it's kind of obscure. We don't know exactly how to translate it. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says he had renewed energy. And I think that's pretty close to the meaning, uh, even if it's not the exact words. It might be something like he perked up, he brightened up. So I'm going to read you then what happened next, because Jonathan ate in ignorance of the vow. And now I'm going to read to you in 1 Samuel 14, starting at verse 36. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let's not leave a man of them. 
And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God. And then, by the way, when the priest said that, he's basically saying, let's ask the Lord first. Saul inquired of the Lord, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me more and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. And then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went back to their own place. So you can see what's happening here. After the men had finally eaten and regained their strength, Saul says, all right, let's go further. Let's keep going. Let's, let's actually gain some territory from these Philistines. And he could have done this earlier if he had allowed the men to eat during the day, but he doesn't acknowledge that. Once again, he was moving ahead without regard to what God might have wanted him to do, right? He was not acting out of faith or his relationship with God, but a rash desire to make up for the problem that he himself had caused. He was the one who caused the lost time by making this rash vow. And now he, tried, he wants to make up. He said, let's just go. Okay, we've eaten. Let's go. Let's keep going. But the priest... We saw earlier in chapter 14, last time we talked about this, Saul called the priest to decide whether or not he should pursue when the Philistines started running. And then he saw they were running and said, forget it. We don't have time to listen to God. Let's just go. And so they went, which was the right call, although I think Saul did it for the wrong reason. Now he doesn't even think about asking God, right? He doesn't call the priest. He doesn't say, uh, you know, what does God want us to do? He's like, let's just go. And it's the priest who says, wait a minute, can we ask God this time? They didn't actually last time. Can we do it this time? And so Saul says, oh, okay, let's do that. And they, they inquire for the Lord, well, what, what the Lord might want them to do at this point in time. However, uh, <clears throat> when they did, there was no clear answer from the Lord. We know that the Israelites cast lots with sort of the holy dice called the Urim and the Thummim. We don't know exactly how it worked. Obviously, there was some possibility that the Lord didn't answer at all, and that is what happened. And there's some truth. You know, Saul at least recognized, let's give him credit in this situation for, for recognizing something. There are times when we don't hear from God because our own sin is getting in the way. If our hearts are turned away from God, if there's unrepented sin in us, it's going to be difficult for us to hear what God wants to say to us. 
And this situation was a physical demonstration of that fact. Now, again, I'm not saying every time you fail to hear from God, it's because there is, uh, you know, your sin and your sin is getting in the way. And that's why you never hear God speaking. However, if you are seeking to know God's will and you're really not getting any sense of what he might want to say to you, the, the very first thing to do is ask if there's any sin standing in the way. It's, it's a useful thing. Now, in our lives, it's a little bit different, right? As soon as, we, as soon as that sin is identified, we turn it over to Jesus. We confess it and we move on. But credit Saul for at least understanding that sin does get in the way of hearing from the Lord. Again, you know, Saul is a complicated man. He had his good moments. On the other hand, though he was right to recognize that sin might potentially stop them from hearing God, he tried to make himself look good in this. Even if the problem is Jonathan, my son, I'll, I'll kill whoever's committed the sin. He did not need to say that. You know, there, there were certain sins that were supposed to be punished by death, but this was not one of them. In fact, this was not intrinsically a sin, right? It's not actually a sin to eat honey on the day of the battle. That's not a law of Moses. This was a vow that Saul himself made and by making it a sin to have disobeyed him, he is taking the place of God. He's taking more authority than God himself had in the situation. God never said it was a sin to eat honey on the day of a battle, but Saul says it's sin, so you're going to die if you've sinned. I think the one who sinned, of course, was Saul himself. A straightforward reading, if we look at this, shows that Jonathan was the one who caused God not to answer. He was the one chosen by Lot, not Saul. But as I just said, eating honey on the day of battle is not intrinsically a sinful act. And in addition, Jonathan was totally unaware of the vow that Saul had made uh, concerning the food, so he did not deliberately or knowingly violate any oath. I don't think that the Lord chose Jonathan to say, look, Jonathan is sinful. I think the Lord did it to expose Saul, to give Saul an opportunity to repent, to impress on Saul, <clears throat> excuse me, his own arrogance and his own foolishness and to show him the results of that kind of behavior and that kind of rash vow. Excuse me, just took a drink of water there. <clears throat> God did not withhold his answer because Jonathan ate honey. God withheld his answer because of Saul's oath. Think about it this way. If Jonathan had eaten honey on the day of the battle and there was no oath from Saul, the eating of honey would have no significance at all. So I think the Lord chose Jonathan to show Saul, look at what you're doing. Look at what you've done. You've just sworn another rash oath that you're going to kill whoever disobeyed you, even though it's not intrinsically a sin. Won't you wake up? Won't you turn around and repent? So Saul's oath weakened the army, both physically and spiritually. It prevented them from hearing from the Lord. And now it's led to the condemnation of the hero of this day, their greatest warrior. Let's say it plainly. The result of Saul's rashness was to condemn his own son to death for simply eating when he was hungry, even when that son was responsible for their great victory that day. But listen to what happens, right? I read it to you. When Saul's arrogance, when his insecurity were exposed, he did not repent. He didn't say, 
oh my gosh, what have I done? I'm so sorry. That was a foolish vow to make. Let's ask the Lord for forgiveness and mercy. No, he doubles down. He would rather, listen to this, he would rather kill his own son than admit that he was wrong. He continued his rashness, and I'll read it to you from the Christian Standard Bible now, and said, may God punish me and do so severely if you do not die, Jonathan. Remember those words. Nothing ever happened to Saul that he did not bring onto his own head. We'll see what, you know, he gets worse than this. But as, as you go, and you might be tempted to feel sorry for him at the end, remember, he brought this all on himself. He refused to repent. Instead, he doubles down, and he calls down a curse on himself. Now, the people were not having this. Jonathan was the one who achieved the great victory that day. He was a hero, and he was ignorant of the curse, and the curse was not even the law of Moses. It wasn't even from God. There was no actual sin here. <clears throat> the only thing that had happened is that Jonathan had disobeyed his father without knowing that he had disobeyed him. And so the people said, no, we're not having it. Not one hair of his head gets touched. And Saul says, well, okay, since you feel so strongly about it, never mind. I'll, 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 you know, fine. So he backs up. We can hope that Saul backed up because he had a tender heart toward Jonathan but, and, and really didn't want him to die. But truthfully, we know that tender heart wasn't enough because a moment before he said, Jonathan's got to die. He didn't back up until the people protested. What changed his mind was popular opinion. Now, it might be that Saul never really wanted that to happen, and he thought if he was harsh, the people would step in and save Jonathan, and that's what he hoped would happen, and that's what did happen. But that also shows how prideful and arrogant he was, how insecure he was. He couldn't, he couldn't change his mind unless popular opinion was with him. He shows how insecure he is. Now, these proceedings probably took a long time. You, generally, there was a, a sacrifice when you went to inquire of the Lord, so they had to kill an animal and prepare it and do all that stuff and then inquire of the Lord and then, okay, what's going on? We're not hearing from the Lord. Now let's inquire of the Lord about whose fault this is. And so all this took a lot of time and the victory, the, the chance for more victory was over, right? They at least had, had driven the Philistines back to the original starting point, but the chance to do anything more had been lost. Too much time had been taken. The Philistines had had a chance to regroup. A thousand years later, Saul's namesake, who was known by his Roman name, Paul, Paul the Apostle, he wrote something about this kind of false religious vow and imposing religion on others like Saul did. Listen to what Paul writes from Colossians chapter 2, 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. 
If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teaching. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul who was originally called Saul, is exposing exactly what King Saul had done. These are, these are human precepts and teaching. They have an appearance of wisdom. They promote self-made religion, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, unfortunately, today, there are still people who try to impose their false sense of religion upon others. I want to be really clear here. I'm not talking about people who are speaking the truth of what the Bible says. I'm talking about people like Saul who don't really operate out of a faith-based relationship with the Lord. These are the folks who tell you you can't eat meat on Fridays or wear blue jeans in church or you're not really holy unless you sound like they sound when you pray. You must worship exactly the way they do. Now, there are certain core things that all Christians believe and agree on. First, the Bible is the word of God, and we need to listen to it and pay attention to it. And so if somebody is saying something that is clearly teaching, you know, taught by the Bible, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about that sort of thing. Apart from the core beliefs of Christianity about the Bible, about Jesus, about salvation, if another Christian or somebody who calls himself a Christian insists that your faith needs to look and sound and feel exactly like her faith, she is operating out of a sense of law and false religion, not a sense of relationship with Jesus Christ. Just to give you an example, I've fasted many times in my life, and often fasting is a spiritually rewarding time for me, but there are times when I've been in the middle of a fast and I just realize I'm just hungry. It's not doing me any good. So forget it. Let's, let's, let's admit I was wrong to decide that I should fast at this moment in time. I'm going to give that up. I'm going to eat and thank the Lord for food and, and move on. The whole point of fasting is to enrich and bless the relationship I have with the Lord. And when it's not accomplishing that, there's no point in doing it. Once in a while, I've also fasted not because I felt like I should, but because other people have told me that they wanted me to fast with them. And I've got to tell you, those times were not productive. When my heart wasn't in it, when I didn't feel called by the Lord to do it and I did it anyway, that was bad news. It didn't help me. It didn't help the situation. It was counterproductive. And so the, the whole point, you know, Paul, Saul should have realized this is counterproductive and admitted he was wrong and said, forget it, let's not do this. Instead, he doubled down. Now, people don't make vows like Saul's anymore. You know, I'm, I'm the pastor of a church. I'm not likely, I mean, I, I really can't think of any situation where I would say, everybody must fast today because of this. I, I, <laughs> I, no, I, I won't say I'm not likely. I will never do that. So, so people don't do that same sort of thing. But sometimes, well, some people do. And so we want to watch out for them and, and be aware of that. But also, sometimes we do that to ourselves. We make internal vows that we hold ourselves to. 
Sometimes we let our negative emotions control us and we act or speak or think rashly or we make quick impulsive decisions that kind of bind us in a way, almost like Saul's vow bound his army. And it might be something like this. You get really hurt and you say, I will never do something nice for that person again. They hurt me so badly. I am never going to be kind to that person again. And you might not even think of that as a vow. You might even forget that you say that or that you said that. But as the years go on, you find your relationship with that person has gotten sour. You become bitter and unforgiving in other relationships. It's because you made a vow that you shouldn't have made. You made a promise to yourself and you're keeping it when you shouldn't be. It sounds like religion. I will do this or I will do that. But it, it, it might be very counterproductive. Maybe you decide because of a certain incident that you hate and distrust all men or you hate and distrust all Asian people, or something like that. We may not think of this like the same kind of vow that, that Saul engaged in, but it really is kind of similar. And when we do that, when we make these sort of promises to ourselves, and just, you know, full of emotion, and we're angry, and we're just going to stick to that, I think we should expect to have the same sorts of results that Saul had, which obviously were not good. But Jonathan gives us a different picture. Jonathan shows us Jesus. He did no wrong. And in fact, it was through Jonathan that the whole country of Israel was saved that day. And he wasn't going to die for his own sin. He was willing to die. He said, I'll die. I'm the one. I'll, I'll, I'll die. But it wasn't a sin. And we knew it wasn't a sin. He wasn't going to die for a sin. He was going to die for Saul's sin, for Saul's rash vow. Now, in that particular case, the Lord protected Jonathan and delivered him through the protests of the people. But the Lord did not protect himself when it was us who committed the sin, when it was our issue. And he stepped up and said, I'll die. And he did not protect himself. And he did die. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. He allowed himself to be slaughtered for our failings and mistakes. It seems obvious now what Saul should have done, right? He should have repented and asked the Lord for mercy and forgiveness, but that would have involved humbling himself in front of his people. He would have had to back down. He would have had to say, I'm wrong. But everything might have been different for him if he had done those things. So if there's some way in which we've taken Saul's course, we've said, this is it. This is what I think. This is how I believe. This is where I'm going with this. Watch out. Don't take the same course that Saul took. And we still have time to correct it. Saul is long dead and he never did correct his own course. And he's a terrible warning to all of us. But we are not dead. If you're hearing these words, it is not too late for you to correct what Saul was too proud to do. If we humble ourselves, if we ask for forgiveness, if we admit we're wrong, we repent of our ungodly internal commitments, the Lord will forgive us and help us. 1 Peter 5, 5-7 says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in the proper time. Cast all your care on him because he cares about you. 
God resists the proud and he resisted Saul. But if Saul had turned and humbled himself, God would have poured his grace on him. And the same is true of us. If we insist on our own way, if we insist on being pride, prideful, if we insist we're right, and we're not going to admit we're wrong, we're not going to embarrass ourselves like that, then the results will be like Saul's results. But if we humble ourselves, we'll be like Jonathan, we'll be saved, we'll be delivered. So let the Lord speak to you right now. Maybe you need to give up an internal commitment or kind of internal vow that you've made to yourself. Maybe it's something different. Maybe you need to realize that you don't have to listen to people like Saul. You don't, you're free from the religious expectations of others that are not based in God's word. As long as you continue to walk in true faith, biblical faith, and, and, and in relationship with the Lord, you're free from those expectations of others. Remember that Jesus allowed himself to be killed for our sins, for our mistakes, just as Jonathan was willing to do that for Saul. And our, our mistakes and our sins are as bad in their own way as Saul's were. Saul remained proud and the Lord had to resist him. But if we will be humble, he will forgive us and lift us up in due time. Let him speak to you about all this right now. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you again for your word. Help us to hear your voice in all of this. Show us if we've made any ungodly commitments that are kind of like Saul's vows that we've decided, well, I'm never going to do this or I'm not going to do that or I have to always do this. Give us your grace, Lord, so that we are able and willing to humble ourselves and receive the grace that you give us in return. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.